0: Brexit is going to have a huge impact on European supply chains or not. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The U.K.'s vote to leave the European Union has shaken global markets. Business is bracing for big changes in the economic and political landscape of Europe, the nature of which might not become evident for years. So when it comes to assessing the real impact of Brexit, we're going to have to wait a while. Nevertheless, there's value in getting a snapshot of current business sentiment, especially among U.S. companies doing business in Europe. One of the earliest versions has come in a survey conducted by the Institute for Supply Management just days after the vote. We're going to find out what that report revealed in my conversation today with Thomas Derry, Chief Executive Officer of ISM. Some of the results might surprise you, even if the situation has changed since those companies were polled. We'll learn why most procurement executives believe Brexit will have a negligible impact on their operations and we'll discuss whether it signals a reversal of the trend toward globalization or is just a pause in that relentless march. So here is my conversation with Thomas Derry. Tom Derry, welcome to the program.
1: Bob, it's really great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Explain to me first a little bit about this Brexit report. I know ISM puts out a series of reports on business. Is this is a supplemental to that. Is it a one-off thing, or how exactly does this fit in with the ISM series of reports?
1: Well, it, it is. Um, it may not be one-off, but as we were, as you probably are aware, we we compile the data for our, both our manufacturing and our services sector. Reports um, at the end of each month and publish, in the case of manufacturing, on the first business day of the month, and the non-manufacturing report on the third business day of the month. And one of the one of the real drivers of value for the report for the people who follow it is the data is reported as about as close to real time as it is possible to get this kind of analysis done. And as we're nearing the end of the month, we started to receive a number of questions from people who look for our report and and, and factor into their decisions um, for the investment community, some of the investment banks, some academics, uh, some policymakers asking us about uh, to what extent the data that we we're collecting for the month of June would be fall, falling after that June 23rd referendum. And we realized that there was a real surge in interest on the potential impact of Brexit, which of course caught us all by surprise. Uh, and so we decided to do a supplemental report to get us uh, a better view, because even if all the data had been collected after the 23rd of the month, which wouldn't have been the case, uh, it's not possible to isolate the impact of an event like Brexit unless you ask specific questions uh, that are you know, directly on that point. So we decided to do a supplemental report because of the level of interest that we were receiving.
0: And uh, you came out with this report just a little over a week uh, after the june twenty third referendum and yet you re- were able to get uh, you felt some pretty good initial, at least initial input from members on what was going on yeah
1: we 're very fortunate we have a a panel of respondents that b- compile the data for our regularly reported economic data each month and so we went back to them with this special set of questions you know they're they 're ready to um, participate in this kind of special data collection many of them are quite proud of the role they play in And providing the data for this very influential report, and so when you have an event of this historical impact, and it clearly is almost by definition once in this half a century kind of event, um, you know they they recognized they had a a valuable role to play, and we also felt it was important in that first week to get real data in the hands of people who had to factor, you know, this this event into their planning, because there was a lot of speculation. You know, there's a lot of informed thinking about, uh, you know, what might be the impact, but there had been an absence of real data, and we felt it was important to get the data into the hands of the people who need to make those decisions.
0: It was an early snapshot. It showed a certain a high level of uncertainty, the same level of uncertainty we all saw around the world, not just from this report. I want to talk about the uh, results of that report, but before we delve into it, I want to ask you now, have you seen uh, two and a half weeks later – any settling down, any changes in sentiment that might somehow supplement the supplement. <laughs> in other words, yeah, right. it, you know, what, what's I, you know, going think, on right I think, now?
1: I think that uh, yes, we have seen that, especially in the U.S. capital markets, for instance. As you know, the uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit referendum, the U.S. stock market, for instance, um, lost over 600 points. The Dow did in the first day, trading day. Uh, it since has recovered. Um, all of that, and and then some. Uh, so we're, we're seeing that settling down, not just within the in the the, the capital markets, but generally across business, uh, uh, you know, across the board. And in our case, I think you know our ISM data probably contributed to some of that. Hey, let's not overreact kind of feeling because our data clearly showed that this was going to have at best, a negligible impact on U.S. businesses, which is the, you know, the, our point of reference for our analysis, was what's the impact of Brexit on U.S. businesses and the U.S. economy uh, by extension.
0: Interesting that you kind of create a feedback feedback loop, in, in that you try to assess sentiment out there, and yet your conclusions then contribute to sentiment in a way. So, uh, I, I guess you you can't you know stand outside of this, can you? Really?
1: Yeah. Well, it, it's what they call that the Heisenberg principle in physics—the very nature of. Conducting an experiment changes the circumstances and the phenomenon that you're testing. So yeah, <laughs> I think sure. ISM can be, uh, can kind of falls into that category. Well, we do, have, we publish an influential report. We know it's closely followed by the Federal Reserve, by the White House, by academics, by the investment community. Uh, in some ways, we feel that we've got a responsibility to contribute to that dialogue because we do have this very influential um, uh, report, and, and we've been doing it for decades now. So we've got a track record of real reliability.
0: Clearly, we don't have time to delve into every aspect of the report, but I would appreciate it if you would at least sum up for me what were the major concerns of respondents to this report.
1: Yeah, well, as I mentioned early on, a very large majority of the responding firms said they anticipated negligible impact on their businesses. So that's the main headline. Uh, In fact, an, an exact identical percentage of firms thought there would be a potentially positive impact has thought there would be a negative impact. And both of those numbers are very minuscule in the sample. Only 6% anticipated a positive impact and only 6% anticipated a negative impact. So they kind of offset one another. And the large majority of firms, therefore, just said, no, it's probably not going to be that big an impact for us. Now, we've been dealing with some macroeconomic headwinds, as they call them, um, for a while now. The dollar has been strong and continues to be strong and strengthened against the pound, specifically in the wake of the referendum. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, the impact of the change in oil prices, which has generally been a net positive for the U.S. economy, but maybe not as much as we had anticipated or would have anticipated from our, our typical economic models in the past, but not, generally has been positive. Uh, and so that has had a dampening effect on exports. But you have to remember that exports are a very small component of the overall U.S. economy, only about 13%. Of U.S. GDP uh, is comprised of our, our export activity, and our overall net exports is actually negative, meaning that we actually import more into the United States than we export. So our our economy in the United States, unlike some other economies such as uh, Germany or Japan or China, we're much more insulated from export impacts or effects than some than those other economies. And that's in a situation like this is generally very positive for the United States. We're a little more resilient uh, and have a little more uh, capability to withstand these kinds of exogenous shocks. Now, that doesn't mean if you're in the export business, you know that's potentially a, a very serious issue for you. And so two of the factors that they cited specifically, you know, the respondents, one was the strength of the dollar, and that is a bit of a concern. So if you are uh, an exporting firm, um, you know, your prices now are uh, comparatively higher uh, than they had been, and so that can, can slow sales and can put you at a competitive disadvantage. And our respondents clearly highlighted that uh, they also uh, were pretty sanguine. However, about employment levels, which is an important factor, they thought that this was not going to have much of an impact on levels of employment uh, at their firms and in the United States. So it's very positive. And the third factor they looked at was the level of capital spending. Um, you know, capital spending very be a very critical factor for uh, influencing um, investment in the United States and for firms. And so. Uh, in this case, they thought that the capital expenditures were going to be unimpacted by um, by the Brexit referendum. so a very important uh, outcome for the U.S.
0: Well, certainly from the standpoint of the value of the dollar, exporters have been facing the headwinds of a strong dollar for some time now, so it's nothing new to them, probably not a sudden shock of it by any means.
1: No, that, that's exactly right. So many firms have already made the adjustment. So the fact that the dollar might strengthen appreciably or you know somewhat, Um, after the Brexit vote was uh, muted, right? The impact was muted because firms had already factored that into their planning.
0: Mm -hmm. I have to think, though, that it's going to cause companies to at least begin to consider changing their distribution strategies, where they have warehouses, what countries they use as launch points of reaching other countries. Do you get any sentiment there that there may be a shift because of Britain breaking off from the EU and the tariffs and the types of tax considerations that might arise as a result of that?
1: You know, that's a very important point, and uh, now thinking more you know, EU-centric, as it were, and, and UK and EU-centric, um, yeah, those kinds of questions are, are clearly going to have an impact. Many U.S.-based firms and many multinationals also tended to use London as their, their port of entry, if you will, into the European Union. Uh, it was convenient, obviously, they speak the same language, convenient in terms of time zones and time differences. You have a highly educated, capable workforce there. Uh, and it made sense for many companies to base their their operations to serve the, Un- the European Union generally in the UK. Well, that strategy obviously is called into question now. Um, uh, in fact, some some of the cert- industries that will probably be most heavily impacted would include financial services. If you're a bank you cannot just simply set up operations in london and now branch set up a branch network in the european union from your london headquarters right that's that's going to be off the table so you're going to have to consider relocating relocation uh, i've read some interesting analysis around um, uk based airlines um an interesting example easyjets and ryanair are two of the low cost discount carriers in uh, in the european union ryanair is domiciled in ireland so that's now still within the eu but EasyJets was domiciled in England. Now, if they're going, And most of their business, by the way, serving EU markets in those lines. So the question now that you know, the, the EasyJets is going to have to confront is do we have to become a, Euro, a European Union-based carrier in order to continue to serve our customers in the European Union the same way we had been prior to the Brexit vote? Mm-hmm. And industries will be facing that kind of conundrum all along. So we've got heavy automotive manufacturing base in the United Kingdom, the question will be, can we continue to serve our European Union customers as effectively and efficiently uh, from a, a U.K. base as we did prior to the Brexit decision? Uh, the answer probably is no. I don't think that means necessarily an immediate impact, but it does mean that firms are likely to change their investment decisions going forward. If you're going to build a new manufacturing facility, it's more likely not to be in London. Um, and if if it's if you're going to be... Uh, factoring in your production levels, you may be lowering them in in London versus a manufacturing facility you might have, let's say, in Eastern Europe. Poland and the Czech Republic are very popular destinations for many firms in terms of operations to um, serve the European Union.
0: Well, thinking about physical distribution of goods, I wonder if it might not be the harbinger of a shift away from a regional distribution strategy to a more country-specific one. Number one, it, might that be the case? Number two, it would seem to me that that would engender additional capital spending because you'd have to have additional warehouses and additional di- distribution infrastructure within each country. Am I wrong in assuming that?
1: No, and I think we're already seeing evidence of that. So um, you know, there's been a – I get asked frequently about the, the, the so-called phenomenon of reshoring, and I haven't seen a lot of evidence, at least not in the companies I talk to, about reshoring in the sense that the question is you know, is premised on, which is, are we going to bring back manufacturing and those kinds of jobs that we've exported, so to speak, to places like China? Are we going to bring them back to the United States? There's not really a lot of evidence that that's going to happen. But firms certainly are doing more of what I call nearshoring. You know, in this, in, in northern Mexico is a great example of this. Both in the automotive and the aerospace and defense industries, you've got a fairly advanced, uh, advanced manufacturing environment in northern Mexico. And as that begins to get established, it becomes more attractive not only to the the OEMs but to their suppliers. And so they've built up a pretty good base in northern Mexico for both of those industries right now. I think you'll find that, generally speaking, companies find that total cost of ownership from their point of view, from the cost of goods sold point of view, is lower the closer you are to the end customers that you're serving. And so you're seeing a redistribution in terms of strategy uh, around sort of more distributed networks with less lengthy sort of extended single supply chains and more network that serves regional markets around the world. I think the Brexit vote will only exacerbate that, particularly with uh, regard to serving customers in the EU.
0: Yeah, usually, when we talk about reshoring and nearshoring, the conversation focuses on Asia because that's where we're reshoring and nearshoring from for the for, for the most part. It doesn't really talk a lot about Europe. Might will are we also discussing Europe? Is that part of the mix, or is that like a whole separate kind of discussion?
1: No, I, I, it is part of the mix, and, and depending on the industry. So, chemicals would be a good example. Um, you've got a pretty sophisticated network in various parts of Europe today, and. And I would expect that to only continue in the wake of the Brexit uh, decision. Um, and, and it's certainly true across other industries as well. But, yeah, I mean, that game, the game that led to the buildup of a manufacturing base in Southeast Asia and China was all around labor arbitrage. And that game's over. I mean, it costs as much to hire an engineer in, in Shanghai today as it does in Peoria. So that cost advantage is gone. Uh, yeah. you, you might You might move some of your production to comparatively low-cost countries like Malaysia or Indonesia today, but you know we all can see the handwriting on the wall there. That that comparative cost advantage is not going to last very long either. In fact, the half-life of that is probably half of what it was in China 30 years ago. So um, companies recognize this, and they realize that their strategies are going to have to shift. It's not about driving out cost or seeking that cost advantage so much today as it was back then. It's more around how efficient am I? serving my customers, what's my total cost of ownership in turn, which includes moving my goods around the world, Uh, you know, where's my comparative advantage in terms of risk and also innovation. And I think you're seeing those kinds of factors become more prominent in decisions about designing supply chains.
0: You know, uh, I haven't talked to anyone who thinks that Brexit is the end of the story of the EU of the EU's problems, and in and indeed, other countries within the within the EU, at least certain political contingents within those countries are making noise about wanting to follow Britain out. I am wondering, you know, in, in the last few years, it's just been the constant drumbeat of globalization. Does this signal the possibility back toward a more fragmented world, or is this just a little bit of a hiccup, and we are going to continue the march for globalization? What do you think, based on on the people you talk to and the figures that you get in your reports?
1: It's a really interesting question, and I think that this, this probably represents a pause in the onward uh, progress of globalization generally. I, I think, in a sense, that genie is out of the bottle, um, you know, the... The, the principle of comparative advantage in economics—I mean, that's, that, that theory holds up, and, and it's very difficult to discount it, even though it means um, significant and often, you know, very impactful dislocation for certain industries and certain workers in certain industries in certain countries. And we've seen that in the United States. But generally speaking, it's also true that the standard of living rises for everyone around the world as a result of globalization. So, notwithstanding the short-term pain and dis- disruption, the, the, the overall benefit is clear uh, for all of us. So that, I think, will continue to be the case. Now, will we see some continued splintering, possibly, of the EU? Well, that's an interesting question, and and obviously it remains to be seen. I think it's sometimes very difficult to argue against the basic human instinct we seem to have around recognizing nation-states and national sovereignty and the whole European Union project is predicated on the idea that I'm willing to sacrifice some of my national sovereignty uh, to a collective, right, to a larger entity uh, to unite us, to bring us closest together and minimize the opportunity for the, the divisions and and Divisiveness that brought us two world wars, um, which sounds
0: which sounds great until then you get this monolithic bureaucracy in Brussels and people go oh well is that what they, is that what all this means and maybe they yeah, start to doubt it. And there are lots of bit.
1: implications. Yeah, so I mean, am, am I willing? We saw this play out in the Greek uh, debate. Am I, as a taxpayer and citizen of Germany, willing to subsidize what's happening in the Greek economy for the you know, overall benefit of the EU when it's really a kind of a wealth transfer from? me in Germany, to my, my fellow citizens of the world over in Greece. And a lot of people have a problem with that, particularly if you feel like you're managing your affairs responsibly and someone else is not managing their affairs responsibly because of the moral hazard, because the EU can step in and, uh, you know, uh, fix those problems or issues that might be self-inflicted. So, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting question. I think the, the euro as a currency is going to survive but you still have the issue of uncoordinated fiscal policies across the 27 now members of the EU so that I think is a real issue i think it's possible we could see one or two uh, of the um you know the states maybe take a move in the direction of at least considering the question of of exiting the EU but generally speaking as particularly for the large economies and the, and the original founders you know, so italy and france and germany and Spain and, and, and those countries, um, the benefit of being within the EU and the benefit of having that common market far outweighs, um, you know, any uh, benefit of um, splintering off and, and going on, on your own path. And I think countries will see that in, in a likely sort of painful Brexit process. The negotiation obviously still hasn't commenced yet.
0: With, People will see with the you know. experience
1: of the UK and, and say, hey, listen, we don't want a part of that.
0: Without minimizing the significance of Brexit, it is, in fact, an unprecedented uh, action. I wonder if there's a tendency – I mean, here is a report that says a number of companies think that at least in some ways the impact is going to be negligible. Are we at risk of panicking? Are we at risk of overstating this and worrying too much? And, in fact, it might not be quite as uh, world-shaking an event as we were all afraid it would be
1: yeah i you know my, that's my personal view and 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 I think that uh, generally speaking that is borne out by events I mean you know there's something called the efficient mar- uh, market hypothesis, right which argues that all the information that can possibly be known about a stock price is known and factored into the stock's price at any given time and an investor like Warren Buffett would say, well, I b- believe in the you know efficient market hypothesis in the long run. And at any given point in time, it's usually wrong. And that's how he's become the world's greatest investor. And I think we saw that in the immediate stock market reaction to the Brexit vote. It was it was an overreaction. It was the sky is falling kind of reaction. And then, you know, we had a more prudent and sober assessment uh, in the in the days that followed. And now we're back to where we were before that whole thing happened. So I think it's you know, not to minimize the, the significant decisions and dislocations that the, e, the UK in particular is going to experience over the next uh, couple of years. I, mean, it, I would guess it could easily tip into a recession at this point, um, and that's going to be difficult and painful. But in the long run, uh, the UK itself is a kind of very vibrant economy. It's a world leader in many areas, and there's no reason why that wouldn't continue to be the case. And we have to be concerned about the trade terms, You know, what tariffs might exist or not exist, and, and what access to that European market do they continue to enjoy um, and uh, that all remains to be seen but yeah no do i think it's it's um uh, well it, it's significant as a political event As an economic event, I suspect um, that we'll look at this 10 years from now and say, oh, that was interesting, but maybe not the impact that we feared it might have.
0: Well, I assume that ISM will continue to monitor the situation either in the form of additional supplemental reports or within the usual report on business that you folks put out on a regular basis. But in the meantime, Tom Derry, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and help us to understand the perspective of the reaction of many companies to Brexit and what might look like going forward. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: It was certainly my pleasure, Bob. Thank you.
0: That was my conversation with Tom Derry of the Institute for Supply Management, talking about a recent ISM survey on the impact of Brexit on supply chains and procurement. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where he post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.